Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi, welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Tony Evans of the Evening Standard and Seb Stafford-Bloor, editor of TIFO Football. Now, it's never a great idea to tempt fate. That's why I suspect I wasn't the only one to cringe when I read that tickets for Liverpool's last home game of the season are changing hands for £6,000. Six grand. Ridiculous? Of course. Let's get this week out of the way first. Leicester at home, followed by a trip to West Ham. Now, we all know Liverpool is an emotional club, but surely no-one's believing the hype. Are they, Tony? Well, no, but I can sort you out with two tickets at that price. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, I think every, everyone's focused. The one thing about last season and the run to the Champions League final is it gives them a great sense of the pressure that builds. So they've, they've been through the madness and all the nonsense. So while there aren't many in the, the team that have actually won titles, they, they, you know, they're a more hardened unit than perhaps uh, you know, you'd expect. Mm. And they've had that break. I suppose it's not just a physical thing. It's almost like a, a mental recharge, isn't it? I've never been a professional footballer, so it's hard for me to say, but playing at Anfield in this kind of atmosphere, in this sort of environment where there's such expectation and, and everything, whenever you see a game from Anfield or you go there now, it's a, there's, a, you know, there, there, there's something else in the air, clearly. Um, and I think too much of that, I mean, you don't ever really want to be a team that exists on momentum. You don't want to be one that sort of is dealing purely on intangibles. Um, and like Tony said, actually, this is a, this is a sort of a, a more structurally sound team, a, a hardened team. And so, you know, a period of time now where I know people gave them a lot of stick for the, for the Wolves' performance that got them out of the FA Cup, but it does actually really look like a blessing in disguise. If you see what's happened to some of the Premier League teams over this weekend and the amount of negativity that that's attracted, Liverpool come back in, midweek fixtures... And the new story is still entirely good and entirely positive, and that, that's got to be a plus. Mm. What are the lessons of recent history, Tony? You know, we, we, you know, we define the loss a couple of years ago down to you know, the Gerrard slip, which is obviously simplistic nonsense. What are the intrinsic differences between that team, the Brendan Rodgers team, and the Jurgen Klopp team? Oh, I think the, uh, the, there'll be no sense of hubris the way uh, Rodgers had it. I mean, they only needed to draw against Chelsea. 
and instead they carried on and they played as they always played. Klopp's got the defence sources out, the solids at the back, they've got a, a good backbone now where they didn't have in 2014 and you know everyone talks about uh, the slip. Well Stephen's got a right to slip in that position on the pitch but the two centre-halves have no right to be in front of him mm. and that won't happen under Klopp. They won't get out of position, they won't get out of shape like that, chasing goals. So they'll play their game, and if it doesn't work, they'll continue to play their game. Mm. You almost got, with, with Klopp, almost like a two-dimensional manager. What you see is the passion, yeah. the emotional engagement, and the arm around the shoulder. You yeah. don't see what's going on at Melwood, you don't see what's going on in the dressing room, where I suspect the message is a little less lovey-dovey. I'd expect so. I mean... Tony's quite right. This is a tactically sound team, which is built on a, you know, a far more sensible premise. And you don't do that as a manager who deals in the kind of rah-rah, essentially. The kind of the persona that he displays publicly is it serves a purpose. It is who he is. We saw it at Dortmund before, um, seen it on German television when he, when he sort of first rose to prominence. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think it's just the perfect blend. You've got a, a manager with a smart mind, but who understands how to channel all this kind of this latent energy that's around the team at the moment, and sustain a um, you know a, a Premier League fight, which is going to be two fronts because once the Champions League begins as well, Liverpool have aspirations there, go one better than last season, and you've got to you've got to be able to departmentalise um, these these different facets within the season, and it's very interesting to watch because Klopp's critics have always said have always sort of tagged him as a particular type of character as someone that sort of just fans the momentum as it goes along. But it's, this, is, this season has proved otherwise because you know, Liverpool haven't actually played that well, or at least not to their capacity. They've played well enough to be where they are and they deserve to be where they are and they've been better than every other team in the division. But you wouldn't say that many of their performances match the peaks that they achieved last season. So there's this management of... Yeah, energy. It's, it's, it's very interesting. And what people don't see about Klopp is that under that smiley surface, there's a, a, a bubbling cauldron of anger. Yeah. You know, and it's not far away. And he's always ready to have a go. And, you know, I, I like that. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to put words in your mouth, Tony, but I always got the impression that you needed time to be convinced by Klopp. Is that right? Well, I still need time. I mean, you know, he's done a brilliant job and he's progressed all the time. But um, I think trophies are about more than ego. <laughs> And, um, Not a bad phrase, that. Someone should use it. Yeah, yeah, I've heard yeah. that before, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, so I think until he don't... I mean, I, my problem is Liverpool fans elevated him to the pantheon of great managers before he's won anything and are still doing it. Well, you know, hopefully he will win something and he will elevate himself up there. But, yeah, he's still got to win something. And, yes. and until he wins something, he'll still be in the, well, the second or third rank of Liverpool managers. Mm, just on that point, um, can you give us an insight, as someone who knows the club really well, the importance, the sort of almost like the social and cultural importance of that managerial line. Just what what does a, a really successful Liverpool football manager from Shankly onwards, what does that person represent? Well, there's two things, and the two of Shankly's most famous scenes. The purpose of Liverpool Football Club is to win trophies. And the other one is um, uh, his view of socialism, is everyone working together and sharing the rewards of, of the hard work. And those two things are the really important things that define Liverpool Football Club. And, you know, it doesn't matter who the owners are, it doesn't matter who the custodians, so to speak, are. That is the, the, the heartbeat and the pulse of Liverpool and, and those, those two things. And you, you, that's what causes the crowd to get 
the way they do. That's what causes the fanaticism, and um, and and that's the that's the philosophy of the cop. Mm. And without and Klopp is perfect for that because politically he's in tune with the city, and and he wants to win. Mm. That sort of thing is quite difficult for the modern player to get his head around. Yeah. What? comes with actually representing that football club as a player? I don't know. I, you know, Mike, it's one of those questions where, as an outsider, as someone who has no attachment to Liverpool and no experience to the city, it's very hard to argue, uh, to answer. But then that's entirely the point, it seems, because Liverpool, Liverpool in, in the positive sense, has always seemed very insular. Um, and so I don't know what it would be to... If you think about sort of some of the managers Tony's mentioned and some of the players that attached to those and some of the achievements that are associated with those eras, um, it must be very difficult. And it's especially difficult now when, when the modern player is conditioned to be led by ego. And ego and socialism, they're, they're an ideological mismatch. <laughs> so it, it's very, very difficult. I, I, think, um, I think to Jurgen Klopp's great credit, though, he's got about as close as possible to get because Liverpool, more than anything else, they're a system team. Yes, they have individuals embedded within that side, and we all know who they are, and we, we can all recall their highlights. You know, um, but it's an organisation. Liverpool are a success because of what they do together. Even if you look at their, their counterpress, counterpressing only works in football if it's well oiled. If it, you, you can't have single players pressing and leaving gaps behind. And so this sort of force of nature that they've they've come to represent is indicative of. I don't, know, I don't want to tag it as a socialism because that's, mm. that's a, a very trite thing to say. But it's interesting because Liverpool have retained a semblance of that kind of traditional identity. From an outsider's perspective, that's really more for, for Tony to, to pass judgment on, I would say. Mm. I do sense a saga coming. Uh, Mo Salah, you know, because of his <clears throat> you know, inability to keep his feet in the box, let's put it like that, occasionally inability, that's going to be the sort of stick that people are going to use to beat Liverpool. Oh, yeah, it's so Brexit, isn't it? It's so Little England. You know what? Everyone, you know, you go over the top, you break someone's leg and you go, oh, yeah, that's good. You know, someone dives in the box, hang him, hang him, whip him. It's just the most ridiculous. You know, I, I don't care which player does it. It's daft. And also, when players are... And, and, and I'm not, not defending salary because he's gone over easily sometimes, but when players are running at top speed, even though the balance is yeah. phenomenal, you know, it doesn't take much from an equally phenomenally balanced athletes to knock them over and it really is it's for me it's the, the worst debate in english football i mean that you know let's let's look at things that matter i mean and then you'll get fans who go oh yeah but it's cost us all this money uh, who cares about money mm. well most people in football care about money to be mm. honest let's look at the the competitive challenge for this week alone anyway yeah leicester there is, uh, you know, still that unease about Claude Puel. Mm -hmm. A lot of talk that Yuri Tielemans is going to be signed uh, from Monaco for about £20 million. Leicester are the sort of team, if they remember they were once Premier League champions, who could actually cause a problem. You know, Mike, I don't know what to make of Leicester. I mean, there'd be times, even in games they've lost, where I've watched them and thought, you're a good football team. You play really good attacking football sometimes, you can defend. And then within the space of another 10 minutes, like the Wolves game, before the FA Cup break is a perfect example where you saw some of their some of their attacking phases, the you know, the move that led to Damari Gray scoring, you know, the Harvey Barnes goal. It's just a really nice construction within their football sometimes. And then there's just lunacy somewhere. There's this there's this uh, I, I, there's this twenty percent of them which does make which makes no sense whatsoever. And so I can you know I, I can foresee any result really between those two. I mean unless there are I get both sides of the argument. I understand why people are sick of Claude Puel. Leicester fans are 
tiring particularly of how they're defending and I understand that looking at the goals that they've conceded but at the same time there's almost there's almost a sense that they are they are developing at the same time despite all these flaws it's it's Fascinating is probably too strong a word, but Clubwell is not really associated with... Mm. with, um, with I agree like, with Seb, I saw them as Arsenal, and for 44 minutes they were superb. They were great. They should have been 3-0 yeah. yeah. up, yeah. and then they concede, and, and Arsenal win tidily in the end, and it's that Jekyll and Hyde character, yeah. which... Um, you can't take them lightly, and I'm sure Klopp won't be, because no. um, you know they've got the pace up front and they've got the movement to trouble any team. Mm. West Ham... Yeah. Probably another matter entirely if you judge them on the way that they limped out the FA Cup. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm seeing them tomorrow night against Wolves and I'm, I'm fascinated because I always want to see how a team reacts to something like that because it's so, um, you know, respectfully, it's so West Ham. It's the last Premier League fixture, they knock over Arsenal and then they get their 3-0 down to a team at the bottom of League One within 46 minutes. It's incredible, and this isn't even an instance where you can blame squad rotation, because if you look at the players that started that game, then th that's really no excuse within that. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, um, I think probably the Wolves' result will tell us a little bit about what that's done to the morale. Bubbling beneath the surface here, we've got the Anatovic issue as well. And I know there have been sort of PR videos put out on social media. I love this club. He, he, really? well, he, you know, he, 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 yes, yes, and he's got his uh, extra days worth of contract to, 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 to mm. bolster that love. So we'll see. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, um, I expect Liverpool to have issues with well, more issues with less than they do West Ham yeah. at the moment. Yeah. What about you, Tony? Yeah, I mean, that's, um, I, I mean, I've seen West Ham a few times this season, and they vary from abject to, yeah. to quite good. But, but like a lot of Pe well, all Pellegrini teams I've seen, they have flap phases, and you can take advantage of them. And Liverpool's pace should yeah. tear them apart. Mm. What about the threat from um, Manchester City? You know, 28 goals since they last conceded, which was you know, against Liverpool. Um, it's almost too easy at the moment for them, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, they've left December behind, haven't they? And, um, and they're a good side, they're a very good side, and they've, um, they've got so many options, they've got strength and depth. I mean, I think they're going to struggle playing on four fronts. I mean, they're, they're going to play in, in um, February, double the number of games Liverpool are going to play, so that'll that'll uh, present problems for them. But they do have uh, they do have depth in the squad. Um, and if De Bruyne comes back anywhere near where he was last year, the, you know, it's good. the title race will be very close. That, to me, has been the most significant factor in the last sort of four to five weeks at Manchester City, where De Bruyne, you can see him visibly bedding himself back into the team. And he said on Saturday, yeah, this is the first time I've really felt that I've been at it. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But he could be a decisive figure, couldn't he? For sure, he's special. I mean, I think the first time he came back from injury this season, he came back prematurely and he sort of limped back onto the pitch figuratively. The second time, it seemed to be managed far better. And he looks not quite where he was last season, but, you know, certainly at that kind of level. I mean, the thing I worry about, Mike, is actually the position behind them. I mean, you know, Tony said they do have a, a big... They're a very important part of their fixture list that's coming up in February. And they're still relying on Fernandinho, who is my age and... Well, I've seen better days, you know, let's be, I'm not, not going to pretend otherwise. And you just, you just wonder what happens, who steps into that role during those period of games and what will sort of the, the, the attrition of those matches do to someone at his stage of his career. So, yeah, it's interesting. I, they're, they're starting to look a little bit ominous and De Bruyne 
certainly makes them more dangerous. But, you know, are the, are the, um, the fundamentals of that side going to remain intact through to March? I don't know. Mm. Was Pep Guardiola trolling us all when he was talking mm. about uh, poor old City's inability to compete in the transfer market? <laughs> you know, they're, they're short of cash, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, well, I think, you know, well, you know as well as I do, they're all mad. Every manager's mad. <laughs> and they say things and you're like, why did they say that? You know, and, and they all think the world's against them. So, yeah, he was, he was trolling us all. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, given the size of the squad they've got, I mean, you, you don't really think they need to upgrade too much during the window. Because, uh, you know, you, you really want, wouldn't want to unsettle things. Um, I mean, they'll be concentrating more than anything on the Champions League this season. Yeah. I think it's really, I mean, clearly Guardiola was brought in to win the Champions League, to make City a European power and a global power. And, and that takes primacy. Um, I do wonder, I mean, the tendency to play Fernandinho and at times to play him one midfield player. Yeah. You know, effectively four defenders and the rest are attackers. I think they'll get caught out against the better sides in Europe. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, not many teams in the Premier League will beat them, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, let's look at Pep. You know, we've talked uh, with Tony about the, you know, the characteristics of the great Liverpool managers. Mm -hmm. You know, Pep, 600 games as a coach now, only 66 defeats, which is you know, a stellar record by any standards. Are we in danger? of taking his presence in English football for granted? Taking for granted is probably not the, the phrase I'd use. I think that sort of whenever you have a manager who's, who's sort of endowed with the literature that Guardiola is and the sort of the um, descriptions of his greatness and the... Um, I mean, anyone who's read any of the books from his time at Bayern Munich will know that there's this sort of... There's this appetite to understand his processes and to celebrate his great attention to detail. I mean, the trouble is, and this is quite similar to the Salah situation Tony referenced earlier, is that whenever there is success in English football and whenever it is attached to particular clubs, there's an appetite to diminish it, to throw stones at it. And I think Guardiola, whether he likes it or not, one of the problems he'll face from a legacy standpoint is that at every club he's been to, he's had a competitive advantage of sorts and he's, he's been blessed with wonderful players. And so for people that want to approach his career reductively, that's great currency. Alternately, though, you, you would you, you look at sort of the the situations in, inside those clubs, and you look at the improvement in individual players. I mean, the great example at the moment is Raheem Sterling, good player before Guardiola got there. You know, fifty million pound player before he got he, he got to the club. Now, a completely different level of, of footballer, um, and you can't you can't ignore that, and you can't also detach Guardiola from similar successes in the past and sort of his role in the construction of a player like Leo Messi, for instance. You know, the, it's a, um, with, with him, you see what you want to, I think. So taking for granted is wrong. Do people attack him unnecessarily? Yes, absolutely. And, and this is just, but this is football. This is what it is now. The, the world is full of people telling you why you're not allowed to enjoy things or why that manager or player isn't as good as you say is. And it, it's just a, it's a sign of the times, really, I think. Do you agree with that? Well, I think, yeah, I, I think he's pretty damn good. I think, he's, um, he's all right, you know, he? yeah. it's, I mean, you, you know, it's easy to say, look at the clubs he's been at. But the reality is, he's, you know, it, just because you have a big club with a lot of money and a lot of players, it doesn't mean that you're going to be successful, Jose. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and, and what he's done, he's created a brand of football that's yeah. been dominant, and I, I think he's up there with the very best managers. Yeah. Mm. Okay. A manager you know very well, Rafa Benitez. Mm. You know, he's, he's facing Manchester City on Tuesday night. Um, Pray for Rafa. 
prey because if you look at the Saturday was just a, you know, another Groundhog Day at St James's Park, people getting angry and frustrated um, and unfulfilled. There's something quite poignant about Rafa being able to do Liverpool a favour because he's, he, there is still an affinity in him for Liverpool Football Club, isn't there? Oh, without a doubt, you know, it's, uh, you know if he had his, his dream job would be back at Anfield. Um, it's really difficult for him. He thinks it will be a miracle to keep Newcastle up. And I have to say, I agree with him, given the players they've got. What he did, his achievement in keeping them up last year, was up there with Istanbul, maybe even better than it. Um, and this year, you know, it'll be it'll be some some marvelous achievements if he can keep them. Or the failure of someone else. Yeah, well, yeah, but I mean, you know, the, the problem is he's a top class manager at a, a second rate club, and it shouldn't be a second rate club because it should be all the potentials there. But it's got a dreadful owner, and um, and he's swimming against the tide. Um, his contract's up at the end of the year, and I think there's almost no possibility of him staying unless there's a takeover. Yeah. What do you make of that situation at uh, Newcastle? It's Seven. an embarrassment. I think Rafa Benitez is a wonderful manager. I think it's best surmised by the Jordan Lukaku situation at the moment. They've had a the possibility of a loan deal in place for a week. It's now, I think we're recording this, 28th today. Transfer window shuts in a couple of days. It was learned just before the weekend that the Lukaku deal is collapsed. And also, you've got this sort of theoretical takeover in the background, which, as it was a couple of years ago, exactly the same situation. The transfer window has passed. The opportunity for investment, the window in which you would spend, is narrowing all the time. And Newcastle fans are quite entitled to say, well, how convenient is that again? And I just think I grew up with Newcastle as a, a great club, also representative of something a regional powerhouse of football, something that represented something within the origins of the game in this country. And now it's just a, it's a marketing platform, which on the basis of some recent financial results isn't, isn't doing well, particularly I, I, well in that area too. The, 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 a real, real symbol of the, uh, the decline there was those figures out last week yeah. that showed that the, the merchandising income has only gone up 600,000 from 2007 to, mm. to last year. This is the thing. I, I, Long before I did this, I, 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 was, um, I was in sports marketing. And honestly, it's quite an achievement. In, in line with how football in this country has grown mm. and the, the sort of the advantages that the global platform provides, to only grow by that amount over that timescale, that is, that is a symptom of serious dysfunction somewhere. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, we've always assumed that sort of Newcastle's nurture on the field has been at the, uh, the opportunity cost of some tremendous financial performance somewhere else. And that's just... You know, so the, the question now is, what is this in aid of? What is this actually in aid of, this uh, recession of Newcastle's culture, essentially? Yeah, because it strikes me, listening to you both, that almost Newcastle are like the dark web version of <laughs> Liverpool, where you've got the frustration, you've got the, you know, the, the latent passion there, you've got a club which, as the figures prove, is demonstrably appallingly run... Mm. Yet they keep coming back for more. Yeah, no, it's um, I, you gotta feel sorry for them yeah. because it's you know the, the club's like a black hole that sucks all the enthusiasm out of the fans and and all the life out of them and the players and the, the manager. Trust me, mm. um, and yet they still come back and they deserve better. Mm. We've got on the Manchester City's game next game after that is Arsenal on the Sunday. Arsenal season. Done. In the process of implosion? 
Implosion's probably too strong because they're still, you know, they're still alive in the Europa League. They still, the league table suggests they they are still a contender for the top four. I just think it's too early into this Emery cycle. I mean, I, I know there's a lot of frustration, but there's always been a, l- a lot of hyperbole around that club and has been for the best part of a decade. I see good things in Arsenal. I see improvements. I see a lot of problems which have been held over from the Wenger era. I mean, the defence is still a calamity. But I will start temper that by saying, look, they've lost Bellerin for the season. That's difficult. The centre-back situation doesn't quite have the stability it needs to. So rather than an, an implosion, I said this is a transitional period. I mean, I know Arsenal fans are pretty bored of hearing that, that word, but it is because you bring a new manager in and, you know, any time, even Klopp, when, when, when Klopp came to this country the first time, no one could honestly say that through six months, even the first season, they were entirely convinced that what's happening now would take place. It was never inevitable. So wait and see. Um, I think the club need to help themselves with... with there needs to be a little bit more clarity over, over their resources as well, I think, because we've had a situation in January where, first of all, they couldn't afford to bring in players permanently. And then Dennis Suarez is supposed to be coming in for something around £20 million. And so no one's quite sure. Sven Mistentat has is off in the first week of February too. So I think there, there are some um, pieces uh, behind the scenes to sort out. But this is all part of the process. You, you bring new employees into a football club, there are going to be this issue, so you, you have to be patient. But well, um, yeah. but there are mixed messages coming out. You know, sure. They're being linked very strongly with Perisic, who didn't play yeah. Uh, yeah. in Serie A yesterday. Where are they? Well, that's a good question. I mean, one of the things that struck me was in the autumn when, um, when Ivan Gazidis says he was going to Milan, and you think he just won his power battle with Wenger. Arsenal, you know, one of the biggest clubs in, in Europe. Why would you go to Milan where they're not going to have any... Uh, much more money and then we see the shambles behind the scenes yeah. and that's why he skipped town before we realised where he'd done and you know clearly there's a lot of, it's been a badly run club for uh, probably a decade and um, and Wenger Wenger looks less of a problem every day that goes by mm. when you look at all the other things that are going on I mean you know you, you, I don't I believe that there's um, the academy's not producing the, the players it should and there are issues there as well so I think, uh, I think it's a big job for the new people coming in to actually change the whole mindset and culture of the club. Mm. Talking of mindset and culture, I don't want to intrude too much on private grief, Seb, but we've got to look at Spurs. Yeah. Are they in danger of doing what Arsenal have flirted with as well and imploding? You know, their season is, is on the knife edge now. Yeah, I, I promised myself on the tube I wouldn't launch into an angry monologue <laughs> at this point. <laughs> go on, go um, Again, implosion is too strong. I think the frustration here is not that Spurs lost to Palace and lost to Chelsea last week. It's that the fans are getting quite bored of this, not contempt, but disregard for silverware. You're in football as a fan to see that kind of thing for victory, for winning, for trophies, for for goals. And there's always this, there are always caveats at Tottenham now. And and I think what's happened is Spurs have created a situation and they created it back in August and July when they decided that despite a huge amount of their first-team squad being involved at the latter stage of the World Cup, that there was no need for enforcement. And they've had, I don't even know what the number is, it seems to update every day, but the amount of soft tissue issues they, they've suffered. And you know, still, they, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be without Ali and Kane until March. I think what they've done is they have taken away a little bit of the aspiration from the season. So it's become, we want to finish fourth, and we want to do ourselves justice in the Champions League. Tottenham are not going to win the Champions League. It's not possible. It's just, it just can't happen. It especially can't happen when they're facing Dortmund in two weeks with this team. 
I think something has to change because it's not, it's not Pochettino, but the attitude behind the scenes has to change. Why are we in this? What are we, what are we, what are we doing? What are we, what are we putting in place to keep, to ensure that momentum remains at the club and that people retain their enthusiasm for what's happening? Because over time, people do not want to see, I don't, don't want to throw them under the bus, but George and Kevin Cody playing in a, an important FA Cup game and, and that kind of thing, these, these things shouldn't happen. And over time, the excuse of, well, the stadium, well, the money, well, the rage restrictions, it seems to be a, a problem entirely unique to Tottenham in the whole context of European football. And, and as they say at Spurs, the game's about glory, isn't it? Well, yeah, yeah. It, it should be. I mean, the, the question is, has the window for this group of players and this manager winning something shot? It depends what what the manager decides to do at the end of the season, Tony. I think I think I think what I will say is that the case for Pochettino moving to Manchester United has got stronger as a result because he may say publicly, "We want to do this. We want to be finishing the league. I'm absolutely fine with it." I, I have a tough time believing that's what he thinks privately. I don't think that the the team has stopped improving because I still I still look at Kane and Ali and. And someone like you know, Juan Foyt played very well yesterday. He's a he's a good player, and and you know some of the um, you know some of the academy players, Oliver Skip will be a good player. So I don't think they have reached their their sort of the end of their potential, but they might have reached the end of a cycle with him. Yeah, yeah. because as Pochettino himself says, yeah. the glory years are in black and white. <laughs> but he, he's right. But then there seems to be no there seems to be no timeline applied to when the aspiration towards Technica the glory days. Mm. Exists. It's sort of like, well, you know, we, we, it's the end of January, and there's still no clarity on the stadium. You know, there's still no clarity about really what the club's financial situation is because originally the fans were told directly from the club that the, these funds were ring fenced. Clearly, that's not the case. And so, um, I'm not getting Lennon in Spurs anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> but it, 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 I mean, it, I'm a fan first and foremost. Like that's that's the only reason I, I I write about football. I am a fan, and so you have to. You, you're always going to have a little bit of emotion towards these things, and it's just you see the wasted opportunity. You see what these players could be with a little bit more support, and you see these minefields in the team's future, which is so obvious, and yet there's no contingency for them. And I I'm yet to hear a decent explanation for why that is. Well, there's certainly been a you know, drastic loss of form in certain areas. Like yeah. Kieran Trippi is a really good example of that. He must have done a deal with the devil to have that sort of World Cup and then come back yeah. and pay the price. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's a team that they played a lot of games, you know, the squad, and they, they do look worn out. And it's interestingly enough, I was talking to someone about the transfer window um, a, a couple of days ago, and we're talking about why teams leave it to the last moment. And, you know, the various reasons, often it's panic, you know, and all that. But we're talking about Daniel leaving, saying, you know, he likes to do it because he thinks he can squeeze a bargain out of it. And this person said to me, he says, you know, it's never surprised me that Tottenham don't win trophies because that's the way they operate. Everything at the last minute. So yeah. the manager's never sure who's going to be in the squad, who's not going to be in the squad. And that permeates through the whole club. And I think the, there is a... Again, we're talking about Arsenal being badly run. I don't think Tottenham uh, as obviously badly run but I think there are flaws in the system there that need to be addressed before they actually win things. Oh, without question, Tony. There's, there's uh, organisation is the thing that I would I would zero in on in the sense that like it's not a coincidence, for instance, that Liverpool having such a good season, having conducted so much of their transfer activity mm. very early in the summer. I know some of those individual players are yet to really find their feet, but as a whole, it's very impressive. Now we've got three days until the window shuts. Supposing Tottenham go out and spend, you know. 
20, 30 million pounds on a player. That player is of no use really to Pochettino until probably March or April because yeah. that's how those, those that, that's the rule that he's applied. Whoever it be, uh, yeah. Son Heung Min, Lucas Moura, when these players come in, there is a time lag, yeah. and so they have they're on a delay always. And to be successful, you can't have that, and it doesn't fit with this sort of this bargain hunting mentality. Mm. It's interesting that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has been saying that you know, no one's going out. Um, probably no one's coming in. He's talking about promoting from within people like Mason Greenwood. Um, they were easy winners at the, the Emirates, I think. What's the chance of doing 10 out of 10? They've had eight wins on the bounce. Why not 10? Yeah, I think they've got a fair chance. I mean, I, I think that all, all the games are winnable until... Um... Well, it's but Burnley at home, then Leicester away. Yeah, and then, well, I mean, I think they can go further than that until they meet Liverpool as Old Trafford um, uh, next month, which I think will be the big test for them and see, you know, where they are. But, I mean, Mourinho had good players. Solskjaer's got good players. And a lot of this time, they'll work things out on the pitch themselves. You know, uh, how much is Solskjaer, how much is them, is anyone's guess. But, I mean, you can't argue with them at the moment. Mm. When's the tipping point come where they actually give Solskjaer the job full-time? Well, I mean, I'd like to think that conversation has already begun. I mean, we all know that there are intangibles here that are influencing how they're playing, and there becomes a point at which Solskjaer not being Mourinho becomes less relevant and Solskjaer, the tactician, you know, looms into view. I can't... I, I don't know when that is, but, it, I mean, what basis that is there to rule him out now? I mean, in the same way that you can't necessarily attribute specific parts of their improvement to what he's done in the same way you can't deny it either so i don't know i, I worry about manchester united's appetite for celebrity and mm. you know big announcements and social media attractions so maybe that counts against him but logically from a football perspective you have to consider it because it, it is working and that should never be disregarded we're going to find out a little bit more whether they're a football club mm. or just a multimedia multinational multifaceted yeah, there, yeah. Content there, provider. there is that but there's also the um you know, the, the counter-argument, you don't want to do it to Matteo. No. You know, mm. it looks like a good idea. And, you know, you've got to give him the job because he's done so well. And then you get to November and you know, <laughs> you know what? You know, I, I think if I was running Manchester United, what I'd do is I'd sit down and say, look, what we want to do is get a man in here who we think will be the manager for the next five years. Does Solskjaer reasonably fit the bill? And, and uh, I'd also, you know, have a selection of other candidates a club as big as United needs to get their act together. Mm. Do they need, it seems they've been looking for a while for a technical director, uh, Andrea Berti at uh, Atletico Madrid has yeah. the latest been linked to that role. You know, is there a dream team with him and, and Simeone, for instance? But Manchester United almost have to modernise from within before they can actually decide that future. Mm. Without question. Without question, the entire... needs to be an overhaul of the way they do football business. And I'm not just... That, that doesn't, isn't limited to just employing a lot of scouts mm. or, you know, restructuring the academy. You need to you need to refine the process by which footballing decisions are made, whether that be the appointment of a manager or the transfer policy. You, you can have a situation... The situation as described by the Jose Mourinho fallout is that he was sending email lists of players he quite liked to Ed Woodward. And with all due respect, Ed Woodward is a fantastically capable businessman. But what basis is there for him making the decisions about a player's viability or a player's worth? You need someone who, I don't I want to use the phrase proper football man, but you, you need someone that understands the game, an actual professional in that role that sits between employer and employee, essentially. And, and yeah, they, they need to do that before they appoint a manager because it needs to be a relationship between the two, uh, you know, moving forward. Yeah. When you look at um, Solskjaer, I think 
it's pretty simple what he's done, isn't it? It's all clearly defined. There's no mind games in inverted commas anymore. You know, that, <laughs> we, we've seen those off. Um, there's, a, there's a clearly defined tactical strategy. Emotionally, he's emotionally engaged the tradition of the club. You know, as, as we've said, he's going to promote some of the younger players. It isn't rocket science, is it, to turn a club like that around? Well, who's a thought putting players in positions that suit them and ask them to do the things that they do well? It's work. <laughs> oh, you know, comes a shock to me. No, he's, you know, he's been very astute in that, and um, and obviously he's close enough to his playing career to realise how the new generation of players are likely to react, which Mourinho couldn't seem to get a grip on. He was still living in 2004. Mm. And, um, and and it's working really well. And, you know, he is making a very, very good case for himself. And United have been playing good football, which, considering the dross, oh, yeah. really, since Ferguson left, you know, as, um, you know, everyone I know who goes to Old Trafford is delighted. Mm. They were unwatchable three months ago. Mm. Absolutely unwatchable. I mean, I went to his game at Cardiff and they, were, they weren't brilliant, but they were as a spectacle of pace and intent and ambition and players didn't look inhibited. It was, it was almost instant. It was incredible. Mm. What about what's going on at Chelsea? To me, Sarri looks a very convenient scapegoat to other, for other issues at the football club. What do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, well, when, when you look, Chelsea's chewed up and spat out, you know, the last two title winner managers, Mourinho and Conte. I mean, why did anyone think Sarri would be any different? These fellas take the job and they find that they haven't quite got the power they expected to have. And um, and Chelsea's squad is lopsided. You know, it's um, it's needed an overhaul for, you know, for five years now. In fact, it's absolutely remarkable that both Mourinho and Conte won titles with, yeah, with that squad. Yeah, yeah. And um, it needs an overhaul. Surrey wants his sort of players um, and he doesn't seem to be getting them. I think it's, you know, another Chelsea tragedy is looming. OK. First impressions, Higuain? Um, hard not to be influenced by what he's been for a very long time, but I think he will... I think he'll be an asset. His prime is probably behind him, but he's a super one-touch finisher, moves very well, uh, works with players, supporting players very well, and that's, that's really what Chelsea need. I don't think, actually, Chelsea need a 20-goal-a-season forward. They need someone that just doesn't disrupt what's going on around them, and he'll do that. He's... Um, you know, he, he needs to be given a month or two, really, because he, he hasn't played very much over the winter break. But, uh, yeah, good I have player. to say, I, I really feel for Giroud here. Mm. Yeah. I think he could play a much bigger role than they're giving him. He's played very well. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm surprised he hasn't been used more. And it, it's one of those things as well, which is always... And the mind boggles sometimes with managers. I, I don't know why they haven't built the team round, um, round Hazard's. And we're talking six managers there. In the seven years there, Hazard's there, six managers have come in and they've all treated them very differently, but none of them have made them central to the team. And, um, and even when he's playing with partners, you know, uh, uh, Maratta and Giroud were very, very different. So we'd start the game with one and then substitute. And, and so the style changes, you know, the, there's no coherence, no pattern there. I would have thought Giroud would have made a much better foil for Hazard, especially when we've seen him in the World Cup and, you know, and, you know sort of the way he played in the France team. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about modern footballers in the guise of Callum Hudson-Odoi. Yeah. Put his transfer request in, mm -hmm. seemed set on wanting to go to Bayern Munich. His career is not going to be an accident. Here's someone whose Instagram handles got a 10 in it, so he wants the number 10 shirt when he goes to Bayern Munich. You know, 
the medium is the message in that in that sense. What is at play here? Is this just one young footballer frustrated by the policy of his football club, i.e. Chelsea, or is it a much broader indication of player power? I think it's both. I think it's both. I think we've we've passed a tipping point with these young players where enough examples exist where, where they see often players they play with at England youth level starting to take strides ahead of them, irrespective of talent. Jaden Sancho is, of course, the obvious example. But it was also English football is starting to breed a different type of player, emotionally different, one who has a little bit more conviction in their abilities, is, is someone who isn't quite a, a, as afraid of what happens abroad. They're not afraid of learning new languages or new cultures. And that's great because, you know, you want urbane footballers, really. You want smart players on the field because they make better problem solvers. It, it, that was one of the aims of England DNA. It was, a, it was a, yes, we want technical ability, but we want players who are accountable to themselves. And that has, is manifesting now in a kind of, well, yeah, it's a nice contract, but I'm not going to be told these lies about or mistruths about, well, yeah, you'll play, but only actually 20 minutes at the end of a League Cup tie. Clearly, having watched Callum Hudson-Odoi, that is not sufficient for a player of his abilities. And good luck to him. I hope he does go. Do you think he'll go? Um, I think Chelsea will make an offer for him to try and keep him. And I think the state of the Chelsea squad at the moment, he might well get much more playing time. Mm. It'd be crazy to allow him to go. Like for, for that, that fee, absolutely crazy. crazy. Mm. Mm. What do you make, you know, with three days, as we speak, left in this transfer window, it seems to have been pretty mundane, to say the least. Mm. Are we going to have mass panic in the next 48 hours? No, I think um, I, I think it's just a quiet window. I mean, l last year was um, unusual for the January window. There was a lot of activity and a lot mm. of spending. And I think that this year, I think people are more inclined to sit tight on what they've got. So I don't think there'll be a mad splurge. Um, I think people are waiting, holding hold fire till the summer. What's been the best signing so far, both of you? If it goes through Tillemans to Leicester, it would be excellent. I actually quite like Dominic Slanky. The fee is prohibitive. I think he's a good player, and I think, more importantly, I think he'll work very well in that, in that Bournemouth system and with some of the players in it. That could blow up in my face, but I, I, remember, I remember seeing it and thinking, yes, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I think Bournemouth have done great business. I think getting Klein in on a loan. Yeah. I think, um, you know, he's, he's still got plenty of improvements in him. I think Solanke is good. You know, so I think they've done really well. Yeah, well, they certainly have. You know, I'd go for Bournemouth's £12 million signing of Chris Metham from Brentford. Yeah, yeah. He dropped into non-league football after being rejected by Chelsea, Watford and QPR. Mark my words, he'll be a top six defender within three seasons. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.